Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi, welcome again to the AMR Studio. Today we have an exciting episode featuring an interview with Dr. Stephen Hoffman. He is the director of the Global Strategy Lab, a research group at York University and University of Ottawa that addresses transnational health threats and social inequalities. And he was here in the last week of August for the World Water Week in Stockholm. So while he was there, he had the time to come over to Uppsala for a day and give a seminar for the Uppsala Antibiotic Center and also be an interview for our podcast. So I hope you guys enjoyed the interview and I see you here back when we comment a little bit what uh, was said. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman, for joining us today and talking to us about your work in antibiotic resistance. Uh, could you introduce yourself and what field you're working in right now and how did you get into that? Yeah, so first, thanks for uh, for doing this. I think it's great that this podcast uh, exists and that uh, you're making uh, these issues uh, widely accessible to many people. So by way of background, so I, I'm a professor of global health, law and political science at York University in Canada. And so my own research is really all about how does the world better manage and respond to uh, threats to our health that transcend national borders. And so in that respect, a lot of my work recently has been focused on antimicrobial resistance which I think is one of those big, grand global challenges that we have to face right now, and we have to face it together. And so each individual country might be able to take some of the solutions and take part in addressing some of the challenge, but we can't do it unless we're all in it together. And so that's where my research comes into play. You introduced yourself earlier as a global lawyer and an epidemiologist, and I just wanted to kind of update on that a little bit. How did you get into this? How did you end up with those two quite different fields and get them together in this way. Yeah, so my own um, research is uh, I try to build on um, using empirical skills, using epidemiologic methods Mm -hmm. in order to better understand how international law can be a a tool to solve social challenges. So that's, that's how I've learned to combine them over time. I guess I was captivated by the idea that already so many solutions to problems already exist. We just haven't figured out a science of how to achieve global collective action in order to actually implement them. And on one hand, we could we often think of these things as being uh, just things that are discussed by diplomats in hidden corridors of power where we never get to see. But instead, what I've been trying to do with my team um, of staff and students is trying to think through how, how do we have, approach this from a scientific perspective? How do we study global governance architecture as it's a science that could be changed, like that could be tested and validated and, and debated over time. So instead of decisions about how we structure global governance architecture, simply being a question of what an individual diplomat knows from another job or a previous work assignment, instead there should be an evidence base by which we're actually designing global institutions. And I wanted to contribute to that evidence base because I think that if we were able to better inform the way that we design these global governance structures, we would be able to solve these big challenges like antimicrobial resistance or the full range of others. And with what you said there, I'd like to segue into that. How did you end up in antimicrobial resistance specifically? I've seen that your uh, Global Strategy Lab has a lot of different focuses, but you seem to have a big focus on antimicrobial resistance. AMR is definitely our biggest focus uh, at the Global Strategy Lab. 
Uh, and it's um, it's out of recognition that this is one of those challenges which we think is one of the big challenges of our time that is in desperate need of more social science thinking to figure out how to mount that global social response that's needed. The individual tale of how I personally came to antimicrobial resistance and as an issue in need of more research uh, is actually a bit circuitous. So I um, I had did a, I did a study uh, quite uh, a few years ago focused on when was it appropriate to use international law to address global health challenges. I did that project working with Jan-Arne Rottingen from Norway and Julio Frank, uh, who's now uh, the president of the University of Miami. And together we developed this framework that uh, had four criteria. And basically we said, if an issue meets all four criteria, then it would be appropriate to have an international law. And when we submitted this for peer review, one of the peer reviewer comments was, well, when we apply our four criteria, to every existing call for a new global health treaty, we basically say there's no need for the global health treaty, <laughs> that it's not sufficient. Usually it was because it wasn't sufficiently transnational. Mm-hmm. It didn't define national boundaries. And so the peer reviewer said, well, if you have a framework that always results in a no, it's not a very helpful framework. So they asked us, when would it be appropriate? Give us an example of a topic that would be appropriate. Mm-hmm. And so we did some internal thinking and uh, thought that antimicrobial resistance is actually a, a the only, one of the only health issues that we could find that actually met all four elements of our criteria. So this um, actually came as kind of from a criticism, it became this giant interest, and you saw how important it was? That's right. Peer review system can be crazy, <laughs> and certainly uh, for many people it can be a source of great frustration. I would say this was one of the times when peer review actually motivated a whole future research direction for me. And that what happened was when we identified that this is the one area, naturally, as an international lawyer who until that time was mostly critical mm-hmm. of the main tool that I had studied uh, as a, a way to solve problems, suddenly became actually a real option and a, a very good option for addressing this challenge. So we got that started then leading to conversations that um, actually happened here in Uppsala, hosted by the Doug Hammarskjöld Foundation. They hosted a, a workshop around... How do we motivate global collective action on antimicrobial resistance? And so one of the ideas I brought to the table was around, is there a role for international law? And it got a lot of attention such that the Doug Hammarskjöld Foundation hosted a follow-up workshop uh, several months later uh, where we brought people focused solely on the role that international law could play. And that workshop resulted in a special issue of the Journal of Law, Medicine and Ethics. Uh, and so that was really quite um, that was really quite an exciting development it's happened right here yeah. in Uppsala, but has continued globally since then. Nice to hear these stories of things actually moving forward, progressing, people listening and taking action, and not just saying, "Oh, that was interesting," and that's that. I'll go back to my regular work. But you really take action and build on this. And it seems largely your action, but that you had a lot of people contributing and really working together. That well, here's this problem. Now we're going to go with it and roll with it and you're still working on it now. The key thing to emphasize it's definitely been there's been lots of people involved. This is a team effort. Yeah. And uh, it's been really great to work with people um, uh, like Otto Kars here at Uppsala University um, but many others around the world. Uh, I mentioned Yonani Rottingen before mm-hmm. and Kevin Otterson at Boston University. Lots of uh, really great people who've been involved and together we've been trying to develop this idea. But you're right, the good news is that it, there is increasing conversation about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's out of recognition that our existing tools to address antimicrobial resistance have proven incapable of actually solving this problem. And so if we're serious about trying to make sure that 
our antimicrobial medicines continue to be effective over the long term, we need bolder action. And when it comes to global governance and when it comes to making commitments between countries, the boldest action, the strongest commitment mechanism is international law. I know international law is not the strongest, <laughs> uh, it has its weaknesses, but it's the strongest of all the alternatives available. Well, to jump to a little bit, how do you as an international lawyer how do people respond when you say, I want to join this fight, I want to work against antimicrobial resistance from, for example, microbiologists and more of these traditional hard science fields? How do they, how do they treat you? I feel like I've been very lucky. It's interesting. I think a lot of microbiologists or health professionals, public health professionals, increasingly recognize that to, in order to solve some of the big challenges that they've been trying to solve for, for decades, mm -hmm. that they, they need to better engage with these social questions. Yeah. So, um, I mean, antimicrobial resistance is a problem that's clearly, at, at the root of it, is, uh, it's a social problem because it's, it's really, I mean, natural selection within bacteria and viruses, it's always going to happen. It's a natural thing. What makes it a problem for humans is that we've accelerated that yeah. natural resistance process. Um, and so as a result... We're then talking about this is a social problem in need of social solutions. And there is recognition that um, people like lawyers, like mm -hmm. economists, political scientists, sociologists, we have a role to play. So I've mostly been welcomed in. There's, of course, been times when um, uh, a couple of medical doctors have sort of said, but I don't get it because I don't work with patients. Mm -hmm. And to that, I would say, that's right, I, I don't. And I, and, I, and I do feel badly often for medical doctors who are faced, who in some countries have patients sort of demanding them for a prescription, even if the doctor knows that a prescription for an antimicrobial won't actually be helpful for them. Uh, so I definitely feel for them. So you feel there's collaboration coming, that it's from right. both sides, that everybody sees the problems with the old traditional methods, maybe, as you said, aren't working here. And you see that everybody agrees that it's maybe not every single person, but that's coming from all fields. I think that our best chance of solving these really complex problems are when people from different backgrounds come together working interdisciplinary, trying to solve it together. So I, and I think that I've been very fortunate to have worked with people from very different backgrounds who, because they're sufficiently motivated to help solve the problem, they've decided to be committed to working together, to learn each other's language, mm -hmm. to learn what we're experts about, but also be ready to admit what we aren't experts on. And I think that's, that's, that's important. Um, I think Interdisciplinary collaboration is difficult, but if we're serious about solving these global challenges, we need to figure that out. And I think universities and individual researchers have a role to play. We definitely need specialists, and I don't yeah. think we should discourage people from being specialists. I just think that uh, we should also be training specialists how to engage beyond, how to, how to contribute their, expert, their specialist expertise to their part of solving these big global challenges. And that's a skill set which we don't always train for in university settings and could probably do better at doing. Absolutely. No, that's a really interesting thing to hear your side of it. I'd also like to ask, uh, what do you think is missing in antimicrobial research from your point of view? I mean, you've talked a lot about the recent progresses that we've made and the steps forward, but there is always room for improvement. And where do you think maybe this improvement could be? Definitely. I think we, we currently massively underinvest in social science research related mm -hmm. to antimicrobial resistance. Uh, I mean, of course, we massively invest in across the range of research <laughs> in this, on this topic, but I think particularly we haven't historically invested in the social sciences. And so what that means is that we 
have technological developments which are then not fully utilized mm -hmm. uh, in society or are, in fact, in this case, abused, right? So we have all sorts of labs and amazing researchers around the world toiling away, spending in all their energy, resources, time, trying to develop a new antimicrobial. But the world isn't currently ready to properly steward those antimicrobials. And my worry is that unless we start investing now in more social science research, we're not going to be able to be good stewards of those medicines, such that if we do somehow get a new breakthrough and a new antimicrobial, within a couple of years, it'll be, there'll be resistance to it, uh, if not uh, extreme resistance yeah. to it. And we have seen that in most recent cases, that the resistance develops much quicker now, and we're not really ready. Even if we're not developing new classes of antibiotics, it is a problem even in the uh, advancements in the antibiotics we already have, within the families we already have. Exactly. And so we're, I mean, I feel badly for those scientists who are working so hard, <laughs> sleep, or not yeah. sleeping, uh, time away from families working on weekends to make these advances. And then within a couple of years, we've just abused it. And that, that's so unfortunate, but it's totally preventable in a sense, mm -hmm. right? We need to invest in better social infrastructure, better social systems to manage these things. But we also know that we don't, we currently haven't cracked that nut. No. We need more knowledge on how to do, on how to do those stewardship programs. But to get this knowledge, like you said, I mean, it's a lot of it is research in social sciences. And from, a per, from my personal point of view, I've seen that a lot of researchers in the hard sciences, air quotes around that, um, such as the microbiologists and the chemists and the people working with the really natural sciences aspect of it, maybe don't always respect the limitations, but also what social sciences can provide in, as a benefit. They see, oh, but maybe you can't, you don't have a, the good social, there's too many confounding factors. You don't have a good uh, population number. You can't represent anything. But, or that qualitative research maybe isn't as good as quantitative research. But do you see that this is a problem with the groups that you're working with, that there is this lack of respect for different kinds of research, or do you see that people are starting to find the benefits in these different kinds of research that they all can contribute in their own way? It's so a that great, was a long question. Oh, that's a great question, um, and I think it goes to the heart of the challenge of doing interdisciplinary work. Uh, I mean, I think I, my answer would be uh, both, actually. So I okay. think that on one hand, yes, I, we do continue to see uh, many people undervaluing certain kinds of research. So even like the term hard science, soft yeah, science, I prefer it. It has a very harsh connotation that I don't right. really mean, but... No, of course. Of course. I, I always talk about it as a natural science and yeah. social science, put them on equal footing. I think the, the key is that um, we need to recognize that each each area of research is, is unique and has a comparative advantage in it. So if you're trying to... We're trying to better understand um, the role of macromolecules within a cell, yeah, you probably don't want to be conducting qualitative interviews of key informants to <laughs> ask for their perceptions of how different carbohydrates might be contributing to cell wall formation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, Maybe not the best of what we can do there. That's right. But... That's right. But whereas if we wanted to better understand how people react to different uh, public awareness campaigns mm -hmm. about the use of antimicrobials, you probably don't want to be... Uh, engaging a microbiologist to be looking at what's happening within a cell when somebody is exposed to a public message. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, <laughs> maybe a, neuro a neuroscientist, maybe. Uh, but I mean, we have people who study these things, communications yeah. uh, scholars, psychologists, uh, sociologists who actually 
focus on it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, between certainly um, in some areas uh, of research, they they give primacy to certain quantitative methods. And for some questions, that makes sense, right? Yeah. I mean, the power that you get from being able to draw on many different cases all at once is is, is powerful, and we should we should use it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't answer. All no. questions and for other questions we need other methods and increasingly i do see an interdisciplinary context there is that mutual respect we each have something unique to contribute the goal then is or the challenge is to figure out what is the unique contribution of those different fields to yeah. the challenge and i think also one of the benefits of these different fields and the qualitative science and the quantitative science together we can there are some assumptions that we make especially in antimicrobial research or the trying to combat antimicrobial resistance that aren't necessarily true. And I hope I can find this article to link it to later, but there's an article talking about different uh, awareness campaigns that found that awareness campaigns toward toward just general public didn't seem to lead to any actual decrease in overprescription. That it's more that people become aware that think about antimicrobials and think about, oh, I'm feeling sick, I need to go to the doctor. That it actually might have led to an increase. It was very hard for them to lead to any real conclusion, but they basically said, this might be a problem that we need to think about, that by bringing up the problem, we're actually causing more of the problem because we're not educating in the right way. We're not aiming for the proper public. We're not aiming for who we need to aim for in the right method. And I feel like that's really a good example of something that, I mean, people who work with bacteria maybe sit and think, oh, we just need to teach people about this, but it's not enough. We need to learn how, we need to learn where. And yeah. I really think it's a good example of what you're saying, that this is, there really needs to come from all ways. We need more research on how to do it and all parts of it, not just the parts that sound good that have good numbers and pretty numbers behind them. And Yeah, I think that's a perfect example yeah. of how we need to take a multifaceted approach to this really difficult challenge. So when it comes to public awareness campaigns, I too am a bit skeptical in the mm-hmm. sense that... Um, First of all, we probably haven't figured out how to best run them. So, yeah. I mean, any evaluation of existing public awareness campaigns might actually not so much point to that they don't work, but it might mm-hmm. point to that the ones we've run, the ones that we've done to date, aren't necessarily yes. working. And that's, um, I mean, I've seen some public awareness campaigns that are just terrible, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's part of it. But I think the other part of it is actually thinking, to, thinking about the full range of tools available. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think... Um, uh, obesity would be one good example where we've learned in the context of healthy eating that simply by telling people to eat better or or exercise more, people aren't going to start eating better and exercising more just because they're told on TV to do so. I mean, everything about our society is built in order to encourage us uh, to eat uh, cookies uh, or uh, things that are just sitting in front of us, uh, like these cookies uh, right here, right now. And so... Um, I, I think that we, the way we've designed a society that needs to change, we need to put staircases in the middle of buildings, elevators on the side, right? Nudging mm-hmm. people toward it. We need to regulate. We need to be um, ideally providing tax uh, cuts for buying fresh fruit and vegetables and maybe tax French fries more than, um, than they are. Um, there's many countries in the world where um, health professionals are not paid for their time but are paid for their prescription. So at the end of their visit, if they don't have a prescription, it means they're not going to get paid. They're going to have a prescription yeah. <laughs> at the end of it, right? And in many cases, unfortunately, it might be an antibiotic. Yeah. That would be, that's, that's not good. Alternatively, um, we often don't fund hospitals on the basis of their stewardship programs mm-hmm. 
or often um, there's one budget to provide care, another budget to provide public health. And uh, public health budget, it maybe is where stewardship would fall. And so it's not, it's often different budgets that mm-hmm. come to benefit. So um, even though public health might actually help prevent infections from happening in the first place, that might not be in a hospital's best interest if a hospital is getting paid to actually treat sick people and wants lots of sick people around. Yeah. <laughs> which is the perverse, I know it's perverse, terrible way of thinking, but when we set up structures to work mm-hmm. according to incentives, we should feel then responsible for when people actually follow incentives. Yeah. It's the and, same thing like you've spoken about before, the monetary incentive for finding new antibiotics, the the money the market system that we have right now for developing new antibiotics does not work for what we need the antibiotics how we need the system to be that we can't have that you gain money or that you make your money based on selling the antibiotic that that doesn't really work if we want to conserve the antibiotic for future generations it's pretty much the same concept all around definitely but i'd like to jump to a different thing just to end with so when you have all these different people with different backgrounds working together, uh, there might, of course, be areas where there are people don't always understand each other or respect each other's backgrounds. Like you said, hopefully it's moving forward and everybody is starting to respect each other's knowledge more. But what do you find is most often mis- misunderstood about your field when you're speaking to people from different fields? Yeah, so I think a lot of people have um, certain perspectives on lawyers. <laughs> some, uh, some are maybe true. I mean, I'm the first one to make fun of lawyers, uh, <laughs> saying that they're uh, often more on the side of the problem than the solution. I think the biggest thing for me would be a lot of people would think that lawyers are working in the world of opinion, mm-hmm. as opposed to others who are working in the world of facts or evidence. And I would say that's, that's true of, of, of practicing lawyers. I mean... We have, we've created in many countries an adversarial system or, or even those countries without an adversarial system there's where lawyers are asked to represent people and write mm-hmm. advanced opinions and make arguments. Uh, but as um, I would say that most legal scholars are around uh, either interpreting the law based on different systems that we've created within law to interpret it and what it, how it applies mm-hmm. uh, or are actually thinking of law in its social context. I'm in the latter, so I'm really focused on how law either contributes to problems or can be changed to solve problems. Uh, And at least my work, I'm increasingly trying to bring um, a scientific approach to the use of law. So, for example, my lab, we conduct systematic reviews, Mm -hmm. looking at the effects of international law and health outcomes. Uh, I conduct quasi-experimental impact evaluations with my staff and students, um, trying to figure out, did that international law have a consequence on that outcome or not? And slowly over time, this contributes to a science of what kind of global mechanisms will work to solve what kind of global problems. And just like policies, you need different kinds of policy levers at the national level to solve different kinds of policy challenges. It's the same globally. And so I think the biggest um, thing that I'm trying to fight against is this idea that, well, global governance, it's just something that comes from within us. It's from practical experience and it's... We just borrow from what diplomats happen to know, the ones that happen to be at the table. I truly believe that decisions should be based on the best available research evidence. Mm-hmm. And so my, what our lab is trying to do and what we're, trying, what we're fighting against are places or people who think that evidence doesn't come into play with global governance. We think it does. And as a result, we try to generate that evidence. 
uh, that evidence base, and we try to do what we can to ensure it reaches those global decision makers who can act upon it. It's really interesting. It was really great to hear your talk today. It was really interesting to hear the work from the Global Strategy Lab, and it sounds like a very unique mix. It's just very interesting to read about, and I hope that other people also read more about your work and your reviews, and hopefully learn more about maybe the global law treaty against antimicrobial resistance being a step forward for us. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we finish up? No, just, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me and um, best of luck with uh, this podcast. I think it's really important that we have mechanisms to convey and talk about these really big challenges and I'm pleased to have been part of it. Well, thank you very much. Welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Uh, Ava and Poe, what did you think? It was very enlightening for me. I learned a lot from the interview. Yeah, actually it was cool that he's uh, a lawyer as well as the first interview in the podcast. I liked because even though he's a lawyer as well, he gave a completely different perspective from the perspective that uh, Kevin Orison gave yeah. to us in his interview. And it was also very cool to to learn that they actually worked together at the very beginning of uh, Stephen's uh, career in mm -hmm. antimicrobial resistance. It's also, I mean, Dr. Hoffman's background in general is quite interesting because he has a health policy background, a lot of the health yes. background, but then also the law on top of that. And I think it gives him a unique perspective. He has a very broad perspective for someone in that's that specialized also. Yeah, it's, right. I, I, which is needed, like yeah, what definitely. he mentioned, to have this like more uh, overall view. Um, I think perhaps one of the first things that we should do is define what international law means because it's mentioned quite a lot in the in the interview and that is yeah, kind of the basis the of his work of and that's what led him to work on AMR that they were actually looking into what global health issues were deemed to be mm -hmm. uh, understood through or like treated through international law so what is international law in, in a nutshell, uh, the definition by the UN is that it is conventions, treaties and standards so uh, so it's not law per se. It's not a law no. per se, no. So it's not what we define law generally. So it's a series of political and moral arrangements that could stand and fall. So it's very interpretive also. And um, anything else that is not that is basically law. Okay, <laughs> it is kind of... A little bit subjective, right? Yes, so yeah, it, bit, therefore, yes. is perhaps when he's mentioning that it's maybe not the best right. solutions, but it's kind of the only the of only the solutions yeah. available. Is because it could be a little bit subjective and how it's actually implemented could Absolutely. actually vary from and country to country. And enforcement struggles. That's one of the things he talked about in his mm. talk that it's really difficult to enforce international law. And I mean. How much do you want to push to enforce it? And it's, a lot of it's based on yeah. I guess context. even if yeah, if and we diplomacy. He talked a lot about diplomacy in the interview, and it's a yeah. big part of it. If we even have problems with enforcing European laws, which is a much kind of smaller scale, imagine yeah. something that has to cross borders in a much uh, larger scale. Mm -hmm. It's uh, kind of tricky. It is yeah. kind of tricky, I think. But it was very interesting to listen that uh, AMR was one of the few, or I would say the only problem, global health problem that 
actually met all the requirements that they were studying and looking into. And it was fun to hear that that's how he got into AMR. <laughs> right. I, I love these stories of how people uh, yeah. get into personal, what personal they work. Personal yeah. paths, right? <laughs> yeah, cool. So he also mentioned the Dalkamakul Foundation, which we, we've realized has come up several times in this podcast. We haven't actually defined what the Dalkamakul Foundation is. Yeah, it's it's an important uh, foundation because it seems coming back to us that a lot of the global work in AMR was actually catalyzed and started through the uh, Dar Hamashol Foundation. So we yeah. wanted to just point out what that Hamashol Foundation is. Um, the Dar Hamashol Foundation is a non-governmental organization that was established in 62, right after Dar Hamashol died, in memory of the second United Nations Secretary General. And the overall aim of this foundation is to advance dialogue and policy for a sustainable development and peace. So all these global um, global health issues, global mm-hmm. threats are something that they are very, very keen on to, to catalyze dialogues and meetings and workshops where people can kind of talk. It's an arena of yeah. discussing all these issues. And from there, there's the beginning of perhaps the more uh, apply work after. Mm-hmm. And it seems to be very successful. I mean, we've yes. talked to several people that mentioned collaborations that seem to have come out of these Dog Hammerfoot Foundation workshops or, or uh, collaborate, yeah, meetings and things. Uh, and among other things, one of the things that Dr. Hoffman mentioned was a special issue of the Journal of Law, Medicine and Ethics that resulted from one of these workshops. That is a really great read if you want to see more about the social side of AMR research. We will definitely leave the yeah. link to that. It's an open access journal. Yeah. And it has a nice introduction by Dr. Hoffman and one of our previous podcast interviewees, Dr. Outerson, as well as some other people that we've interviewed before. And it's a, it's a really good read. I wish I had more time to read it. <laughs> yeah. As I said, I wish I had more life to read more stuff. Yes. <laughs> Another topic mentioned during the interview is about its incentives. Uh, he's mentioning how if we have certain incentives in place that we should not be surprised that people follow these incentives. In mm-hmm. particular, he was talking about the incentives to uh, prescribe more when mm-hmm. the doctors and the, they actually get paid to prescribe certain medicines. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to mention that uh, incentives are not only in that basis. There's also incentives, for example, in antimicrobial research and development. And those incentives is basically what can of moves and drives how the development works and the market. And interestingly, very recently, the Public Health Agency of Sweden has commissioned a report to a group of researchers here at Uppsala University, and one of them is actually part of the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, a report concerning which incentives for antibiotic research and development Sweden should take into consideration for potential public investments. This means that this group has looked into which incentives there are in research and development and reported back to the public agencies so they can actually take a look at which ones would be the best for a country to put the money in to continue with the possible development of new antimicrobials, which are really needed. So this is just a note that we wanted to mention. We're going to leave the link to this report because it's now in English and available Mm -hmm. for anybody to read. So that is something kind of related to to this incentives issue that he mentioned. And it kind of ties into what we mentioned, uh, I think, in the last episode about how the UK is looking at uh, new incentives for antibiotic development. And it seems like this is coming more up on the global scale. And it's it's good to see that it's not just the UK 
Yeah. Sweden's also doing their part. Other countries are probably also jumping in. It's, yeah, it's we, good to see some progress. If we want new drugs, then maybe things should change a little bit. So yeah. it's good to look into it. Then. And it's, yeah. well, it's really good that several uh, models are being looked at yeah. in order to find the most suitable one for the country's purpose, right? Mm-hmm. So that stewardship can really be effective mm-hmm. depending yeah. on the country's context. Exactly. And it's very good also, I think, that this particular report have, has been decided to be translated into English because, of course, the original report is for the Swedish agency. It's going to be in Swedish. So the fact that this is actually now translated and made available, hopefully people from other countries can also read it and mm-hmm. take a sample and undergo similar investigations, similar reports. Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. One last thing before we wrap up, I want to make a little bit of a correction. I mentioned in the interview an article that I then said talked about how antibiotic awareness, antibiotic resistance awareness campaigns might not be so successful. And I mentioned something that they might actually increase the prescription of antibiotics in some way. And the thing is, I realized after the fact that one of the articles that I'd been reading around the time probably was a popular science article or opinion article that I can't find again. So I've kind of mixed some things up, but I did find an original research article that was one of the ones where I found some of this information in, and we're going to link to that one. It's called The Effectiveness of Interventions to Improve the Public's Antimicrobial Resistance Awareness and Behaviors Associated with Prudent Use of Antimicrobials, a Systematic Review. And they did find that some of these public awareness campaigns targeted towards a general audience have some flaws and some didn't seem to work well. Mm. Uh, And I recommend that people read it. It's a great article, but uh, I just wanted to clarify that some of the things that I said might not actually come from this article and I can't find the source. Actually, this is a very uh, good way to now say that uh, by the time this episode airs, which is going to be March the 4th, we're going to be full on preparing for a live episode we're going to have at a very big fest- science festival that happens in Uppsala every year. And in that festival, we're going to have a live interview with somebody that is precisely working on understanding public awareness of an, on antimicrobial antibiotic resistance. So we hope that the live recording of this uh, interview goes well, and therefore we can then make a short special episode and put it online right after it happens. So this is going to be uh, Saturday, March 9th, so barely the same week as we actually are releasing this episode. Yeah. And that we're looking forward to. We are really looking forward <laughs> to that one. It's going to be something new, something different, but yeah. uh, definitely exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the news section. Today we are going to talk about two very different recent publications. One is actually a scientific research paper, and the other one is more about a dialogue paper, more like putting forward some ideas and things that are needed in the topic of AMR financing. So I think it would be best if we start with the science-heavy part (laughs) of the news section. This is actually something very related to your own research, right, Jenny? Yeah, this is actually a paper published, among other people, by both of my supervisors. So this is very close to what I work with and something that I really enjoy reading about. She kind of thought maybe this is a conflict of interest to bring it into the podcast, (laughs) but I was saying, no, this is a very important paper. We should really talk about it. And now you have the chance to actually talk a little bit also about what you are working on. Yeah, uh, and I definitely agree. It is very important. So it, it's nice that we get to bring it up. But it's a very uh, bacterial genetics heavy paper. So we're going to try to go through it at an understandable level and try to keep things relatively simple. Uh, but this is a paper called The High Prevalence of Antibiotic Heteroresistance in Pathogenic Bacteria is Mainly Caused by Gene Amplification. And it was published in Nature Microbiology on February 11th, 2019. 
So there's a couple things already there in the title that kind of needs some <laughs> yeah, explaining. Yeah, I, I guess like the keywords, right, is yeah. uh, hetero resistance. This is a topic that I don't think we have talked about in the podcast before. No, and it's kind of, it's not really brought up that much in the antibiotic resistance field. It's not like a hot topic as much, I'd say, but it might be of importance and they kind of show that in this paper. So heteroresistance when it comes to bacteria is when a fraction of the bacteria causing an infection are more resistant than the other bacteria in the infection. So if you're testing for resistance of the bacteria, you might see the resistance of most of the bacteria, but you don't really see that this small fraction of bacteria are actually more resistant. Yeah, it's like it's like within a population of bacteria, you have yeah. a part that is more resistant than another part of the mm-hmm. bacteria for whatever reasons. And this is what this paper is looking into, yeah. right? Are they the same bacteria? Yeah, they're, it's the same bacteria then. So they can be genetically identical or mainly genetically identical, but have things that are expressed differently or other things that are causing them to be resistant at different levels. In this case, we care about the ones that are more resistant. And so this kind of difference in the resistance of the bacteria can lead to a misunderstanding of how resistant the bacteria causing the infection would be. So this is clinically important in that sense. Yeah, you because, might not catch it in the clinic. Because if you have an infection and you're testing to see if there's a resistance to a certain antibiotic, yeah. and then you might not catch it because it's only a sub, it's only a very small part of the population that is resistant, yeah. then you might be actually misdiagnosing this resistance. Mm-hmm. So what they found in this paper is that this phenomena called heteroresistance is actually quite common, and especially in clinical isolates. They were looking at clinical isolates mainly, and they looked at uh, four different bacterial species and found it in the four different species. And they actually tested it for many antibiotics, right? Not just yeah, one antibiotic. Yeah, they tested a lot of different antibiotics. They did find some differences in different classes, so some antibiotics, this didn't seem to be that much of a problem, but it was definitely several antibiotics where this does happen, and in some cases the high levels. And this can this heteroresistance they found can be caused by different things, but it's mainly what they call unstable heteroresistance. So something that if you test one of these bacteria that is more resistant than the rest of the population, again, it might not show a higher resistance. So later. it might it's like transient uh, yeah, it's phenomena. Transient. So it might be there at one instance that you test, but it might not be there on the next time that you tested for exactly. it. Exactly. Which makes things even more complicated. Yeah, it can make it even harder when we're talking about testing for resistance in the clinic. I mean, something that might in a human body show that it's resistant, like an infection might be resistant be, Not there. be able to be clear up. Yeah. yeah. You might not be able to see that in the clinic if this resistance is lost. Oh, okay. So, yeah, yeah I understand. So it's not it's not a constant thing. Sometimes it is, but that what they found is that it mainly is what they call unstable, so transient. And the interesting thing also about this paper is that they go a step further and they try to understand what mechanism causes this heteroresistance to be so, un- so unstable. Yeah. So why is that? So this was another one of the words in the title. So it's caused mainly by gene amplification. And this can be a little bit complex for people that aren't used to genetics, but say when a bacteria is replicating the genome. So all of the genetic material is being copied so that the bacteria can divide. Yeah, for reproduction. For reproduction, reproduction. yeah. Uh, When this happens, some of the genes can sometimes be copied too many times. If there are sequences around them that are very similar or identical, it's kind of like uh, think about the old cassettes, right? Yeah. That there was it is like a tape, and if you have two pieces of that tape that are very similar, they kind of kind of stick to each other, mm-hmm. and then we can make these loops, and these loops can actually be read again yeah. and again and again and so recopied think, a lot. So that's a really good like example, it. yeah. It, and it can end up to be quite a lot of copies. And these copies can also be lost quite quickly. So this makes sense in the sense of why it's 
comes up quite quickly and disappears quickly. So it's this instability comes yeah. from this genetic composition or mm-hmm. genetic characteristics. And when you're looking at it, I mean, genetically, it might look the same because if you're looking, you might not see that there are more copies of the same thing. You see that the gene is present. Mm-hmm. So sometimes this is hard to detect, what we call amplifications mm-hmm. of a gene. So these gene amplifications can actually lead to increased resistance because there's more copies of the resistance gene that was already there before. And this can lead to higher resistance for the bacteria. And then one of the interesting things in this paper is that they also use a mathematical model to show that this might cause treatment failure, heteroresistance. Which is kind of the next step, linking the science understood in the lab to what the effects might be Mm -hmm. out there in the clinics. And tying it through that patients might actually see treatment failure because of this, and we might not be able to see it in the lab when we're testing for resistance. To, for example, choose which antibiotics to use for a specific infection, so on and so forth. So I think this is a really important piece of work, personally. I'm a little bit. (laughs) Bias, but no, definitely, we were very happy to see this out because we think that the community definitely needs to know about this. Mm -hmm. And it actually is quite uh, curious. I'm actually gonna go to a conference in April on clinical microbiology, and they actually have a whole section on heteroresistance. So, this is something that is coming up, and that several different groups and clinics around the world are seeing that is an important topic to study and to talk about. So, I'm looking forward to go to that and learn a little bit more and see what's going on out there. Ava, what was the other publication? We decided to talk about this, even though it was not really uh, put out this year, 2019. It was in December 2018. But we decided to talk a little bit about it because it relates specifically to today's episode in the sense that this dialogue paper, development dialogue paper, comes from a meeting that was catalyzed by the Dar Hamas Hall Foundation that we talk Uh, when we were commenting on uh, Hoffman's uh, interview. So we thought that it was kind of fitting in that way, and also, of course, it's relevant. So this paper, which is titled Antimicrobial Resistance and Sustainable Development, a Planetary Threat but a Financing Orphan, it talks about how AMR is such an important problem. It's a global threat. If we don't do anything, if we are able to reduce the rates of accumulation of antibiotic-resistant infections and, and bacteria strains, we might end up in a very dystopian future, as we have talked before. Yeah. So they actually gathered together a number of stakeholders, and they sat down to talk about, is there enough financing for AMR? And here today, we talked a lot about financing, perhaps for drug development, right? Mm -hmm. But they actually left this aside because, of course, there is a lot of dialogue going on on how to put money into getting new antibiotics out there. But they were actually more focusing on seeing, okay, is there enough money to all the other things around AMR that are needed to tackle AMR? Mm -hmm. And if not, then what are the steps that are needed to take to bring that money to AMR? What are some of these other things around AMR that they're focusing on? So they actually talk about where is the money supposed to go when we are not talking about new antimicrobials or diagnosis of vaccines. So it has to do with everything related more with surveillance, understanding where the resistance is happening, what are the patterns, communication between countries, mm-hmm. also what they call catalytic funding, which is this first help out to countries to be able to set up national action plans that can tackle AMR. So it's basically everything that has to do with AMR that is not related to these new drugs or the diagnosis of the vaccine. So infection control, for example, as well. So all these parts are also equally needed to get going into the AMR. And maybe often forgotten in the world. Yeah. 
So it was very nice to read. One of the important parts is to actually find a way to make AMR more relevant mm -hmm. for the particular stakeholders that will be able to give financing out for AMR. So they were actually looking at how important narratives are, which I thought this was very interesting, which is narrative, it means how do you build up a story? How do you make this sound interesting? But also, of course, backing it up with data, right? Yeah. Because you need to back it up with data. You cannot just say, oh, this is the worst problem we ever faced, but no. saying like, but why? Why is there evidence for that, right? And balancing that, trying to get your point across, but also being I mean, correct, you can't punch holes in the story and everything like that. Yeah, and they were also talking about that uh, perhaps this is a very good moment to actually channel uh, funding for AMR through the Sustainable Development Goals Agenda. Mm. That is out there right now, the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Because AMR, in a way, relates to many of these Sustainable Development Goals. For, for example, the Sustainable Development Goal of Poverty and Hunger, Good Health, Clean Water, Environment, Responsible Production and Consumption. So maybe moving the narrative towards connection between AMR and the Sustainable Development Goals could actually make these stakeholders realize that this is something that is worth pursuing. I also found quite interesting a part that they talk about that is the idea of act now to not pay later, right? Because if we are able to act now, put some actions on work that will prevent the burden that we will see of AMR later, then we're avoiding all these costs that will come later from yeah. the AMR effects. And they were actually talking about how perhaps we should actually include in these dialogues all these private foundations and also private mm -hmm. insurance companies because this is what they work with, right? Yeah. Like trying to minimize risks for the future. Mm -hmm. So if we with data can back up that, you know, if we don't do anything, this is what's going to happen. Maybe we can take even more parts that want to be working yeah. working on And kind on of convincing people with the whole, I mean, your return on investment. So it's not money going out to nowhere. It's money that's going to prevent future costs in actually your net gaining money. <laughs> exactly. And uh, within their paper, there were also a very nice work on identifying two kind of branches of these AMR uh, funding uh, necessities. Mm -hmm. One will be more at a global level, right? What What is needed at a global level? And another more at the local level. And of course, this at some point need to be able to communicate and to yeah. coordinate together. But at a global level, we will be talking about, for example, mm, this surveillance of resistance, what is the burden of... Uh, AMR, what are the use of antibiotics overall, analysis and sharing experiences, setting up guidelines, setting up coordination that can put all these countries together and this what we call so-called catalytic funding that they're yeah. talking about. Whereas at the local level that we will have a little bit more what is direct political action, the mm -hmm. national action plans in different countries that can be uh, implemented, the different governances, the different map of how the things are working in the countries and also of course collaboration between countries that are in similar areas that are being affected by AMR in the same way. So in results, they also look a little bit about these national action plans. There is a lot of countries that have come on board with these national action plans against antimicrobial resistance. For example, Sweden has a national action plan in place, but there seems to be uh, this connection between saying, yes, we are going to set up a national action plan and then the actual action within it. It's easier to write the plan than yeah, to Yeah, so there are many the countries action. that perhaps they need more support 
more yeah. tools, more to get to the point that there are different phases and then the phase of actual implementation. Mm-hmm. We here in Sweden have it very easy in a sense. So yeah. um, they they see that there is this dichotomy. Some countries are doing very well. Other countries, even though they might have it written on paper, they are not really doing anything. So yeah, yeah. it was interesting to read and also that they really emphasize a lot into how the communication is so important, right? How do we communicate the AMR story? And they advocate for the need of these AMR warriors, they call it. So these are people that are highly knowledgeable on the overall problem of antimicrobial resistance and that can be advocates for it and can really make the stakeholders and the people that we need to have on board to be interested also in this topic. And maybe also just expanding what we call stakeholders. I mean, it sounds like they're really bringing in more things. (laughs) I just said a Swedish word. I don't really know why, but... (laughs) You've been here too long to meet me. (laughs) True. But uh, yeah, so that was it. Uh, We, of course, are going to leave the links to these uh, papers. But on the financing side, I have one little, just a little blurb of something that's happened recently. So we talked in previous episodes about the UK push or the announcement that for the UK to push for new financial incentives and new economic models for producing new antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And a group of organizations in the US has actually sent a letter to Congress on February 5th of this year to try to kind of push for the same thing. And that group is made up of, among other people or among other groups, the Pew Charitable Trust that we've talked about before that's very active in AMR, uh, the Infectious Disease Society of America, Trust for America's Health, and U.S. antibiotic developers, both big and small developers, basically for delinkage as well for new economic incentives and new economic models for antibiotic development. Yeah, so this is kind of fitting with what we've been yeah. talking for the past five months. <laughs> yeah, but right? it's, it's nice to see this kind of, it's coming from different countries, and Absolutely. I mean, this isn't actually going through Congress yet, but they're pushing for the same kind of thing and hopefully there's a trend huh? yeah. yeah hopefully this trend will lead to some actual progress and yeah. we'll get somewhere <laughs> nice yeah. so uh, just as a quick last note you are probably listening to this either on March 4th Monday or after March 4th and we want to announce that uh, this semester we are actually live streaming and having online the seminars that we have here at USC in Uppsala so if you are not located in Uppsala and uh, you want to actually watch these seminars you can do it by going to the link so for the seminar for this semester the link is bit.ly so bit b-i-t dot l-y slash u-a-c seminar mar m-a-r 19 so it's easy it's bit.ly which is the shortened u-a-c seminar mar 19 and then next month will be april 19 so on and so forth but uh, here you can actually check out the seminar very interesting double feature seminar and can you also find these links online on the u-a-c website u-a-c dot u-u dot a-c nice Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nys for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.